Welcome back to Little Wars FM. I'm Josh, your behind-the-scenes podcast show editor. If I may, a little editorial context for today's interview. As part of our multi-part series on how to design wargame campaigns, we spoke to Henry Hyde. Henry is a longtime wargamer, former magazine editor, and someone we consider a leading historian on the hobby itself. We used bits and pieces of Henry's interview in our campaign series, and today we're thrilled to share the full conversation with you. Miles and Greg interviewed Henry about his recent 500-page magnum opus, Wargaming Campaigns, published by Pen and Sword. Today, the three of them talk about how players can use the book to help design campaigns across all eras of history. So sit back, pour yourself a dram, and enjoy this Patreon-exclusive episode with Henry Hyde. Henry, thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. I mean, um, you, oh, you're you've, you, you, you've been on some kind of list here for a while. Like, oh, we need to we need to talk to Henry. We need to we need to do a video or a podcast with him. And uh, when we were talking about this campaign idea, it was like, oh my gosh, the timing on this is perfect. Miles had yes. just uh, brought your book into the club, and um, it was the oh. ideal opportunity for us to do this. Hello everyone, my name's Henry Hyde. I'm the author of two books that wargamers seem to really like. Um, the first one was The Wargaming Compendium, published in 2013. And the most recent one is Wargaming Campaigns, which was just published in June of this year. On the topic of wargaming campaigns, if somebody is listening to this and they are not familiar with the book, because it is quite new, Give us uh, the 30-second elevator pitch for what that book is and why somebody might be interested in buying it. Wargaming Campaigns builds on what I wrote about in the compendium. It it's basically takes the notion of uh, stringing together uh, a narrative stream of tabletop games or some games that may just be played in your heads or on a, as a board game. But... Um, making each battle that you play relevant to the next battle that you play so that you're not just getting standalone fight to the last man kind of encounters all the time it actually matters that you've managed to keep a reserve it matters that you've managed to retreat those units off the table before they get crushed uh, and also bringing all those other as aspects that usually get overlooked when we talk about tabletop wargaming such as logistics and even things like naval warfare amphibious operations air campaigns air power uh the whole thing about you know supplies and logistics strategy all these wonderful things that uh if you're just playing simple tactical tabletop war games you miss out on and there's a huge rich tapestry of wonderful for wargaming stuff to be discovered and that's what my book is about and i can heartily recommend it as an owner of the book it's uh, very well done and uh it, it's always a fun read so nicely done henry thank you very much indeed Miles. really appreciate that there's so much happening in a topic like this when you talk about campaigns so many yeah. different directions you can go and that was something that we discussed at length here in our club as to how we wanted to even organize this small podcast discussion and yeah. the way that we decided we would tackle this is 
much less comprehensive than your book. Uh, we we <laughs> we figured we would break this down uh, into two types of campaigns that people could look at. They could look yeah. at a map-based campaign, yeah, land, sea, air, combination of all of the above. I'm a huge fan of map-based campaigns. You know that open sandbox. Those are generally yeah. the most complicated style of campaigns. But you could also do something much easier. You could do a linear. Uh, or a ladder campaign, which you talk about extensively in the book. I think the map-based stuff is self-explanatory, but how would you describe a linear or a ladder-style campaign? Okay, um, talking about this immediately, I have to mention Two Fat Lardies, because I think they're, they're, they're probably their campaign books are some of the most you know well-known in the hobby for running ladder type campaigns and uh it's it's really simple you can almost say uh that it's a bit like in any other kind of sport or hobby where you would have kind of a a, a competition setup uh where effectively you have uh, objectives at either end of the ladder you kind of start in the middle of the ladder and you can in its most simple style you could say well you you are trying to amass a certain number of victory points that's a really simple way of approaching this isn't it you could say that right for every game you play say you've got player a and player b uh, for every game they play, you get three points for a win, two points for a draw, one point for a loss or zero points for a loss. And the first person to reach a certain number of points wins the campaign. And a ladder campaign is organized pretty much in the same way where basically you have uh, you, you play a game. You might have you might have actually planned out in a vague kind of sense a kind of map that might doesn't necessarily need to be a literal map you and you could say that right okay game number one is going to be fought on open ground in the middle of you know wherever it is then you're going to have a woods battle and then you're going to have a, a village battle and then you might have a major kind of city battle something of that kind or taking a bridge crossing a river whatever it happens to be so the you you kind of lay out a sequence of games and you fight that sequence of games uh and the latter idea is that well you know uh, it could be that player a is just so much superior to player b that it it goes right they win the open field battle they win the woods battle they win the river crossing battle they win the village battle and then hey there we are they're outside the city and they take the enemy city so it, it can be as simple as that but normally what you'd expect is it's going to kind of swing to and fro a bit so player one might win the open field battle but then they lose the woods battle and they're pushed back again and you have another open field battle and so on and so forth and in each circumstance you can build in okay look at however many losses each side took in that initial game and let's say that uh, you know player a suffered 20 percent losses player b suffered 30 percent losses and retreats uh, and uh, for the next game you can recover a certain percentage of those losses so they're, they're not completely dead they might be kind of treated as wounded or people who ran away or whatever so you might say well okay uh, player a who lost 20 percent were half of those come back so they start the next battle at 90 percent of their original strength player b who lost more is starting at 80 85 percent of their original strength so that you can build in what we said uh, earlier about uh, the outcome of 
a battle affects uh, the the setup and potential outcome of the next battle. So that's a really, really simple way of looking at a ladder campaign, that it's simply without the need for doing any kind of maneuvering on maps, without needing to measure any distances, you know, without needing to worry too much about logistics and that sort of thing. A simple ladder campaign is just a series of games where the outcome of the first game outcomes uh, affects the outcomes of the subsequent games and how they're set up. Um, and you can, if you want, I mean, there's uh, there's uh, a system that two fat lardies have used in, in in their kind of Napoleonic uh, campaign setup, the name of which has just escaped me at the moment, uh, where actually you can have pre-drawn, pre-defined maps of those battlefields so that that's already been decided that this is, and you could do it on, you know, an old fashioned index card or something of that kind or post-it notes uh, just a really simple kind of sketch map of what the the the, the subsequent battlefields are going to look like and it could be that these battles are all taking place along a major road from say country a to country b or an invasion route or something of that kind so you could draw that the 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 thread if you like that follows through all the battles is that there is this main road that's kind of uh going from one baseline to the opposite baseline through the middle of each of those battlefields and that's a really really simple way of doing it uh and it, those could be really satisfactory they're easy to set up you can play games with whatever rule set you normally play you know and uh you can base the the forces that beginning on whatever forces each player literally has available to play their games it can be really simple really uncomplicated and you know great fun in in the same way as if you if you're a regular kind of i don't know a tennis player or a chess player or something like that you've got league tables and the the, the you know the outcome of uh, one match determines who you get to play in the next match uh, which is something else of course you could do it could be a ladder campaign played between the same two players over a period of time or it could be that you have different players taking over for the different games um it, you know it's up to you mix and match it there you go greg i think one point you brought up that i think is really important if, if you've never run a campaign a ladder campaign or linear one is a great way to start because you can anticipate a lot of the battles. Like you said the battlefields can be laid out. You know, yeah. you can reduce some of the variability. You still have the players because they'll they'll do stuff that you don't anticipate. And yeah. you still have the key thing of any campaign, which is ramifications. You yeah, know, my, my my actions today impact my options tomorrow. Yeah, uh, but I think as a first time GM, if you're if you're thinking about a campaign really look at, at a linear campaign because uh, it just it makes it a lot easier to administrate this oh yeah absolutely you've hit on a really good point there because we've been kind of talking about the players experience mm -hmm. but uh, th what we must never forget in campaigns is that very often and, and it's highly recommended they involve one or more umpires games masters call them what you will and that's something that I write about in the book is, you know, before you just plunge into a campaign, you really need to think about what kind of campaigns manageable, both for the players and for the, the games master, for the umpire. Because uh, one of the things that makes campaigns fail so often is people over committing. 
thinking that, oh, yeah, of course we can run a country that's 10,000 square miles with 15 different races in it and, 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 and. You know, I've been guilty of that in the past, and we'll talk a bit about that, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I, I still think we have a carrier strike from a 1942 Pacific campaign that has been in the air for three years. Seriously. Yes, it has. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that can happen. So, yes, you're absolutely right there, Buzz, that basically uh, a ladder campaign is a much lower kind of ask of yeah. both players and umpires. It's much easier to do something that's relatively formulaic, uh, so long as you know it, it helps if you've got someone with exp experience in the uh, the planning stage saying, "Oh yes, actually, I think a good sequence of games would be uh, X followed by Y followed by Z." That's that's that really can make a big difference. Uh, but at the same time, of course, it's entirely possible to just randomly generate the games as you go along, you know. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that uh, some people have done. Um, get a pack of playing cards and according to you know what you the card you draw that represents a particular kind of game uh, and it could be anything and this is the other thing don't all have to be big battle games you know it could be oh if you if you pull a, a two of clubs that's just a little skirmish game you know something going on in the woods over to one of the flanks there if you pull you know the king of diamonds okay this is the big set down the big encounter it's so easy it doesn't take much thought just to come up with a, a variety of different types of games and according to what card you draw from a deck or roll a dice against a table of potential games you know it's really easy to kind of randomize this stuff um and that's something else as well you know the, the, if you if you're if you're still nervous about god i'm not sure how a real campaign would progress what kind of action would follow another kind of action just randomize it just pick a draw a card or roll a dice or something of that kind uh and it will be probably a bit more chaotic but this is the thing about real war nothing's actually ever predictable and therefore your sequence of games that you're thinking at the beginning god that looks a bit mad you know i can think of any number of real historical campaigns where you look at the sequence of events like whoa i wouldn't have expected that so uh yeah and it can just be great fun and really simple to do without any kind of planning headaches involved with it so we've mentioned the simplicity, the ease with which players can get into ladder campaigns or linear campaigns. And, and we've yeah. run in our club, we have run some really good short campaigns that were on this kind of scripted structure. But I'll admit that for me personally, as a as a veteran player and all three of us on this call are very much veteran <laughs> war gamers, the linear style sometimes can feel a little boring. Um, you're, you're missing out on, I feel like, some of the strategic freedom and complexity that you get from mm. an open sandbox from being able to say you know what my armies can go anywhere i want on this map but but mm. before we go down the map road which can get very complicated <laughs> are there any ways henry that you can think of or that came up in the book that uh players could use to sort of juice up a ladder or linear campaign any anything they could add into it to maybe make it not as simple, to make it a little more strategically interesting, still following the linear format, but maybe getting a nod towards some strategic gameplay that happens outside the tabletop. Well, yes, sure. I mean, random events. I mean, that's immediately what pops into my head. And I, I've, I've written a lot about random events in the book. Um, and again, it's simply what I provide in the book is... Uh, 
kind of two ways of doing it. There's a, a table, huge table of, you know, roll some dice and this happens or, or draw a card, draw, create a set of cards of random events and this happens. And it could be something like, you know, well, OK, in between the last battle and this battle, uh, side A, um, the, the weather's been really hot. And that this side hasn't got enough water, so they're feeling dehydrated. So they're not going to be fighting at their best in the next game. Or that side gets a new supply of boots, right? And so they're feeling much more comfortable. Or this side runs low on ammunition. Or that side, you know, the cavalry regiments go down with dysentery. You know, there's any number of things that can just add in kind of a bit of a fun factor, quite apart from anything else that makes it just unpredictable for both sides so that each turn before each, you know, the next game, you have to draw a card and that card can have an effect. Uh, it could even be a really drastic effect of, do you know what? Uh, this side has got something politically happened as back home. So the campaign ends, you know, it can be as drastic as that if you want. Uh, you know, I think I've got a card in there somewhere that so blame it on the Jesuits. You know, there's a sort of stuff happens and it's all to do with the, the religion and politics back home that kind of overrides whatever you might have been planning. Um, just a bit of a laugh, but if, if you don't want things to have that big of an effect will obviously just tone down the selection of potential events that that you have those those are really easy ways of doing it and i you know this is i'm not claiming to be original here uh you know i, I we've all confessed that we're veteran war gamers here i remember people like don featherstone coming up with this kind of stuff back in the 1960s and 70s or tony bath you know i uh, hats off to those guys it's very difficult to kind of reinvent the wheel so in my book, I make it clear that, you know, these people had some really good ideas about this kind of thing. So how about trying this? And it's it's just adds a bit of fun and interest with very little brain work, uh, just rolling a dice against the table or drawing a card. And that can spice up a ladder campaign really easily. So I like I like the random events idea. And there is a big chapter, um, a big chapter in the book where you give lots of examples, entire tables that, you know, people could yeah. just copy and paste if they if they wanted to, which is great. Um, well, actually, I I, I want to go back to, uh, earlier in the book. Um, my, maybe my favorite chapter in the book is you, you have an entire section that is and you've mentioned it already strictly dedicated to questions that a gamer should ask before they even begin the campaign, when they're just in the idea phase. You know, it, it yeah, doesn't yeah. matter what period of history. You could be looking at a Napoleonic campaign or a World War II campaign. You have a great list of just checklist questions to consider Yeah, yeah. Uh, that would help a player to design a campaign. Yeah. Um, what are some of the questions that are on that list? It's very exhaustive, but let's touch on a couple highlights that maybe come to mind for you. What are what are some of the considerations a player would want to ask that go well beyond the question of, well, is it going to be linear or map based? I mean, that's a fine yeah, starting yeah. point, but you have a lot of other questions in there that I think are really useful as a, a way for a player to kind of organize and formulate their ideas. OK, uh, well, I uh, if. People are listening and they have a copy of the book. Turn to page 31. I feel like I'm some sort of vicar in a church. Turn to Psalm 74, you know. Uh, <laughs> turn to page 31. You do not want to hear my singing voice, Henry. I, <laughs> I assure you, people have heard it before. It's ugly. <laughs> and it, and it's the section uh, it, uh, it, in the chapter about uh, an introduction to campaigns. There's a section that's all about sizing it all up. 
so really simple questions like how many people are going to be involved in the campaign? Mm -hmm. How long is it going to run? Uh, is it intended to be purely historical or will it allow players more freedom than that? Uh, how large will it be uh, in geographical terms? How many sides are there? Because obviously, if you're talking about, if we looked at a, a, a historical example, let's look at a historical example. Uh, okay, think about the Napoleonic Wars, but think about the Peninsular War. Okay, where technically, for a lot of it, you've got the British and the French, maybe with some Portuguese allies, maybe with some Spanish allies, a few Hanoverians thrown in or whatever. But that compared to, you know, the larger battles of the Napoleonic era, where you've got the Austrians, the Prussians, the Russians, the French, the Bavarians, the da 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 da, -da you know, those are very, very different undertakings. Uh, a Peninsular War campaign is uh, uh, much less demanding of organisation than, say, uh, Leipzig, you know, 1814, whatever. So that, there's those sort of things to consider. Um, how comprehensive do you want the campaign to be? Uh, so uh, we've already mentioned things in passing, stuff like logistics, weather. You know, these are things that often, to be frank, get left out of campaigns because people go, oh, God, you know, I don't have to worry about whether it's raining on the day that my, you know, I've got my musket armed infantry in, in full battle array. That will really put a dampener on things, won't it? But, yeah, in a campaign context, you really ought to be thinking about stuff like the weather. You really ought to be thinking about, you know, have I got enough supplies to fight all day or are we only going to have to fire off a few rounds and hope for the best and maybe retreat because we haven't got sufficient ammunition that kind of stuff um how intensely must the players participate now this is something that i've learned the hard way uh, over the years uh, because um sometimes players like the, oh yeah i'd love to fight in the campaign but they don't actually really want to put in much work you know, this is where the ladder campaign and that kind of stuff comes in. Whereas there are other times if you're if you're really keen on being a, an umpire, doing a lot of world building and adding a lot of detail and that kind of stuff. Uh, if you're lucky, you might have some players. Wow. Yeah, I'm really into that. I really want to be able to, to decide what the button design is on the coats of my fusiliers. You know, that's fantastic. But. It's also quite rare. And more often than not, when you're running a campaign, you have to, you know, dealing with different people's lifestyles, the different personalities, how much time they can allocate to this thing. You're dealing with a mixture of people, some of whom may be mad keen and send you 10,000 word reports for every move and other people who kind of just do the bare minimum and sometimes frankly don't turn up at all so that's a really kind of important thing when you're planning a campaign no i think you have to be really flexible as a gm because people's interests you know waxes and wanes and, and yeah. it's a real balancing effort between complexity because all of us when we come up with the campaign we we love it or we wouldn't be doing it and and we love the detail uh we often overestimate the uh, ardor of our players in the <laughs> yeah. detail and the longer the campaign, the, I think the simpler you should make it because, you know, each player has a certain well of of, of, uh, of stamina. They don't tell you what it is at the start and, yeah. and then you kind of bump into it as you go. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. But that thing is yes, that that question of how intensely must the players participate? That's one of the key factors for sure. Um, 
And then the question, yeah, does the campaign require an umpire or multiple umpires? Uh, you know, I, I'm the kind of muggins who um, I, I, I always stupidly put my hand up first when it comes to umpiring because I just happen to be strange and love doing that kind of stuff. Uh, but sometimes when you think of uh, the late Paddy Griffith, who used to run huge Kriegspiel type games, uh, often involving real military personnel at staff colleges, that kind of stuff. That's the kind of scenario where, yeah, one umpire is going to be, you know, driven to distraction unless they get help. So there are some situations where it can really help to have more than one umpire. Uh, and often it's a good idea if that that umpiring team has some kind of structure. So there's someone who's got kind of overall role of being like God and then their minions who are kind of their assistants who may be dealing with the separate teams. So each team of players, um, when you think about, I don't know, the, if you're re doing a campaign to do with Normandy, D-Day invasions, that kind of stuff, you might have uh, an umpire who's dealing with uh, the German defenders. You might have an umpire who's dealing with the French resistance. You might have an umpire dealing with the British invasion forces, another dealing with the American invasion forces, another dealing with the Canadian invasion forces, and so on. So that those teams will report to their specific umpire who will then confer with each other and with, you know, the top dog who makes the ultimate decision. Um, uh, and it, it, it's unusual, I would say, for most kind of club campaigns, that kind of thing. More often than not, you can get away with one, maybe two umpires. Uh, it would be a very specific kind of, as I say, live Kriegsfield sort of situation where you would want multiple empires, where literally you're kind of playing the thing in real time over the course of you know a day or a weekend or something like that. Um, so that's a critical question um and then what materials need to be produced to operate the campaign and that can be all kinds of stuff it can be you know uh how you know do you need really detailed maps or just need stuff on the back of a post-it note uh do you need any special devices you know obvious things like make sure you've got enough dice uh do you need to produce kind of uh, special playing cards or anything of that kind to help the thing to go on? Do you need nowadays? Wow. In the, we're in the age of the Internet. Are your players going to be communicating via email or over Discord? Or are you going to be putting things in a Dropbox account? You know, mm -hmm. wow, things are more complicated than they used to be because the options are so much better more extensive than they used to be it used to be yeah i'm going to stick this letter in the post and i know it's going to take several days for it to reach this other guy whereas now with instantaneous communication managing things like oh gosh do you want the players to be allowed to talk to each other over email how would you prevent that you know other than by a you know a sense of honor i promise not to communicate with my my mate who i couldn't really talk to if we were really there sort of thing um, you know it's it's these things are real questions nowadays um another question is will the participants know the details of the rules or just have an outline because again that can make a difference do you if you want people basically doing real strategy you almost want them to be able to do that regardless of what the specific rules for the campaign are 
right? And sometimes, because then that also avoids the rules lawyer, the person who says, oh, I think you'll find on page 74 of your book, Henry, <laughs> that you said this. Well, I'm God and I'm changing my mind in this circumstance. You know? And so sometimes it could be really helpful if the players don't necessarily know the apps, all the, the, the dots of the I's and the crosses of the T's. Um, and then, you know, something we mentioned earlier, how much realistically can you actually take on, whether as an umpire or a player? As you mentioned, life, life throws stuff at you that you didn't expect. You know, had I been in the middle of running a campaign and suddenly I got that, ca that, that cancer diagnosis, wow, that would have really changed how much I could cope with as an umpire. So you need to kind of have have plans in place that, wow, you know, if, if you go down with COVID or something like that, or the internet goes down, you know, you've got Wi-Fi and suddenly, as can happen to any of us at any time, hang on, what's happened to my Wi-Fi connection? All these kind of things nowadays that you need to think about. And I think the biggest question, the one, uh, 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 the biggest of all, um, is the one, the question I put last here, which is, What's it all for? Why are you doing it? Uh, if you've got together to do a campaign, you know, you get, people come to the club and, you know, oh, come on, let's have a set down battle. I've got some Austrians. You've got some French Napoleonics. Come on, let's just have a bash. And sometimes that can just be enough. We're just here to have a bit of fun, roll some dice, that'll do. When it comes to a campaign, people have different ideas about why they're playing the campaign. Uh, and for some people, it's like with a ladder campaign, I'm just doing the campaign because it will produce a series of tabletop games. That's all I'm interested in. I'm only doing this so that I know that I've got a, a game every week with some sort of raison d'etre for that battle, you know, that it actually means something that, yes, it was affected by the previous battle. I'm fine. Great. But that's all I want out of this. Other people may get really thrilled by, and I confess I'm one of those people, Thrilled by the world building, thrilled by the manoeuvring across a map, thrilled by the 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 way that you can use strategy to deceive the enemy, the way that you can use your forces to deceive them into, oh, look, the big push is coming over here. Ha ha, no, it isn't. It's actually coming over there. You know, when you look at what's in real life, look at what's happened in the war in Ukraine just recently, where the Ukrainians have managed to kind of do this bluff in the south and then attacked in the north and regained thousands of square miles of territory. That's the kind of thing you can do in a map-based campaign that people like me go, wow, yes, I want to be able to do that kind of stuff. And some, this is the other thing. In a campaign, you can win strategically without a shot being fired. And as a war game, for many war games, that's whoa, does not compute. Hang on a minute. What what do you mean I can win without actually ever having a battle? You know, when you look back through history, people like the Duke of Marlborough, for example, in the early 18th century, that's how he kind of won a lot of his wars, but was by avoiding big pitch battles, because back then they knew how expensive it was they, they had governments and exchequers back home saying look don't you waste our troops it's cost us an absolute fortune yeah. to put this army in the field don't you dare risk it in a big open field battle right yeah. sieges are much more the thing go and look take that town take that city you know surround it cut it off it's going to surrender hey 
wow, that's an incredibly valuable asset for us. Wonderful. And at some we, point, we, we, we won by logistics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's you, kind of where, I, where I'm at with that. Guys. Yeah. I think you bring up a really good point about, I think one of the key responsibilities of a GM is to lay out for the players the vision for the campaign, the why. Yeah. Uh, just so you can get an informed consent. Consent. Yeah, I really want to do that. Or uh, I'll show up for a battle, but maybe not the in-between yeah. stuff. And, and I think taking some time to really lay that out and gives you the best chance to have a, a great experience because you've yeah. got people who all have real lives. So, Henry, I want to talk about a um, an example of a campaign maybe that you have been particularly invested in. You you yeah. do give you give case studies in the book, not only of campaigns that you have played, but you also, as an observer, look at campaigns that others have played that you have have simply been watching and admiring. Yeah. And uh, so obviously we don't have time to go through uh, all of those examples and we want people to read the book. But sure. could could you pick one? Maybe it was in the book. Maybe not. Maybe you didn't yeah. even make it in the book and tell exactly. us about a uh, a memorable campaign that you either ran or played in. And what was it? that made it so memorable in hindsight and uh you know what are some specific examples of mechanics in this case study that worked well and then maybe even an idea that didn't work well not every campaign is successful sure okay I, i've been thinking about this uh I, I i i'm waving at the camera people can't see i'm waving at camera this is my first campaign diary for my completely fictitious the wars of the Faltinian succession Okay, uh, and this thing, uh, people on Twitter are saying, please scan it in and just do a PDF of all this handwritten stuff that I put in of, uh, you know, each unit and its commander and uh, where it was on each day and where it was going to and what the thoughts were about what it should be doing, all that kind of stuff. This was one of probably one of the most detailed campaigns that I ever ran. And I'm looking at the, the date uh, inside the, the on the first page of this thing, and it says December 1986. That's how long ago I started. I, oh wow! Oh oh boy, you're you're pretty old, Henry. Oh uh, yeah, I'm really old, guys. <laughs> I'm really ancient. Now, great. how many? Uh, so back in the 80s, how many people did you have involved in this campaign? And were you just the GM, or were you also a player? I tell you, how many people are involved? Two. There was me. And I was kind of doing this joint role as umpire and player and my friend Guy, who I'd been at university with. We'd graduated a few years earlier and we kind of started wargaming together then. <laughs> Excuse me. It was actually during my I did a year abroad in Germany as part of my history degree. And it was while I was enduring this bitterly cold winter in, in Augsburg in Bavaria that I got some notebooks and stuff and started dreaming up these completely fictitious nations. And um, they, hence Punkland and Falkenland were born. And after discussions with my mate Guy, we decided, oh, yeah, we should do a, we should do a campaign. We we'd played a few one-off battles, painted up a few units. It was like, come on. And it's time to kind of actually do a campaign and we did several over the over the over the next years and there was um there, there was we got tired of invading each other <laughs> so we i invented this kind of neutral country just to the north called martinstadt and so it's hey a bit like a mini belgium we decided okay we're gonna we're gonna fight across neutral territory uh, and it was a hoot it was <clears throat> and why it was memorable 
it was memorable for a number of reasons. Excuse me. <clears throat> First of all, uh, the world building. I just love world building. I love creating maps. And anyone who does buy my book comes away under no illusion. You know, oh, my God, this is a man who loves maps, who loves creating maps in many different ways. And I do. And this was kind of my first outing in. I'm just going to invent this kind of world that's kind of a, a middle europeish as we would call it, middle Europe sort of area with kind of some Germanic and Dutch speaking and French speaking peoples and some Russians out there on the fringe. Call them different names, but, you know, it, it's recognizably kind of European 18th century. And I designed the rules uh, using hex based movement which worked really well. I mean, I, I tried maneuvering over squares based on stuff I'd read by Charles Grant back in the day, the, the original Charles Grant who wrote The War Game in 1971. Uh, but I realized hexes actually worked much, much better because the movement just worked out much more logically for troops. And it was much easier to say, right, uh, you know, infantry can move two hexes per move, light infantry three hexes, uh, light cav uh, heavy cavalry four hexes, light cavalry five hexes, that kind of thing. It just worked out really well. And also we were doing it, uh, it and I've mentioned this earlier, the old days where there was no internet back then. We would write our coordinates in a letter to each other. So we'd have this exciting, you know, waiting for the postman to arrive. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd probably speak on the phone and we'd do some, have, you know, a bit of a chat and stuff. And then we'd write our orders and we'd be waiting for the postman to arrive, open that envelope. And there's the enemy's declared coordinates. And so we do kind of tracing paper overlays on the map and see, oh, gosh, oh, what are they doing there? And what's happening? Oh, and not knowing what they are, of course. So is that is that cavalry? Is that infantry? And we start doing tricks, I have to say, based on the fact that we were just doing map coordinate declarations. So you'd have your light cavalry deliberately only moving slowly at infantry speed so that your opponent couldn't tell from the map move whether that was infantry or cavalry. <laughs> right? Very clever. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. Right. And stuff like that. And it, and it was, you know, looking back, it was so funny. And I kept this incredibly detailed record in this book of, you know, OK, uh, so here's the coordinates for that week. Here's where I am. And there's his coordinates. Me trying to guess, oh, is that I think that's some infantry there. Oh, gosh, I think that, yes, could be an infantry brigade. And then all these extensive notes I made about what I was thinking and therefore what I would do in response to that. And uh, using one thing that became really apparent uh, and thrillingly so is the importance of reconnaissance forces when you're uh, mm -hmm. working with strategy rather than tactics it became vital we very quickly learned it's no good just you know sending out your full units and declaring those because it becomes obvious oh yeah that's some infantry for sure oh i bet that's his artillery whatever so we you got very quickly into the habit of sending out screens of light cavalry and light infantry so that they themselves were producing additional coordinates which he couldn't see past, you know, and you could have them doing, you know, tricksy maneuvers up in the hills and woods and stuff. And 
Meanwhile, working on really vital stuff like concentrating your own forces at a particular, uh, you know, critical point on the map, which could be a river crossing. It could have been as it was. I ended up winning a, that particular campaign, that my 1744 campaign, by successfully maneuvering my army so it could surround the capital city of this country and lay siege to it. And that basically kind of ended the campaign because I realized I completely outfoxed him, much to my own surprise, I, I'll confess as well. But I did manage to outfox him and his, he was, it would have taken him a long time to get enough troops to kind of relieve that particular main fortress town. So that, I suppose, is probably still in my memory one of the, first of all, one of the most successful campaigns I've ever fought, one of the most clear-cut victories I've ever had in any context in wargaming ever. And it was it was just fun. And what came out of that was a real appreciation of uh, the difficulties that a general faces when they can't trust the information that they're being fed. You know, you're relying on reports from other people. You're relying on other people to be your eyes and ears. And you do start thinking, you know, you get that feeling that, well, okay, my cavalry has reported enemy movement in that hex over there, but we can't tell, is that infantry? Is it cavalry? Is it just a battalion? Is it an entire brigade? Uh, are they in fact neutral? Are they enemy? Uh, which direction are they going in? So you're paying close attention to where the coordinates are going on the map and are they moving away from there? Are they moving towards? It, it was an absolutely fascinating exercise and giving getting an insight into what it must have been like for a real general in that period to have been completely reliant on other people feeding them information and making judgment calls about how reliable that information is, questioning that information. That's a really important aspect of learning strategy as opposed to just tactics. We're, let's face it, in a war game, a tabletop war game, it's like we're up in a helicopter, isn't it? We can see everything that's going on. There's no question, mm, that's a cavalry unit. Mm, that's a cuirassier unit, in fact. Whereas in a campaign context, how many of them are there? Uh, can I find out specifically what type of unit that is? And in the campaign rules I put in the book, you know, that we go into that. It's like you get to interrogate that information and it's done randomly with dice rolls. How accurate is that information that you're receiving? And so does the enemy just declare, look, hey, it's some troops of mm, roughly regimental strength. Uh, or can you really get down? Oh, actually, it's the seventh cuirassiers, and there's uh, their units under strength. There's only twelve of them instead of you know sixteen or whatever. And and understanding that you uh, in war you have to make plans based on incomplete information. And I find it uh, I find it interesting that you you your takeaway from that campaign is that one of the reasons it was so satisfying to you and to your friend is because you guys were able to reach a decisive conclusion, which, yeah. which to be perfectly <laughs> honest, is not always the case and is often <laughs> not the case when wargamers play campaigns. I could, yeah. you know, Miles and I have 
plenty of examples of, of very promising campaigns that we set up yeah. in our club. And, you know, we're veteran players. We're not like newbies yeah. here who are just doing this for the first time. And yet so many of them seem to fizzle out. And and I think we, we, we know what the common culprits are. So what I want to ask you, Henry, is when someone's setting out to design a campaign, mm. what are a couple of tips that you could offer them to help get to that satisfying, decisive outcome that made your campaign so memorable? How can people prevent their campaigns from fizzling out and get to the finish line? What do they need to keep in mind at the start in order to know where they want to go in the <laughs> Okay. Um, we've mentioned a bunch of these things before. Um, limit the scope of the campaign to a specific piece of ground or a limited amount of forces or a limited amount of time. Uh, and I go back to the example I gave of those games that I organized for the guys that were taking place in Aiton up in Yorkshire over several years. It's like, okay, we know what the outcome needs to be. So the, the scope of the campaign needs to be restricted to enable that to be an outcome that in the space of X number of weeks, there will be on the Saturday two or three smaller games that will take place that will lead to one enormous game the following day. This also takes a fair amount of umpiring skill. And what I mentioned in the book is the art of fudging, right? And the art of fudging is not being too pernickety, uh, basically uh, squinting a bit and thinking, well, okay, technically speaking, that unit might be a day too far away to take part in that game. But I, you know, because that would be, you know, poor guy, he's brought his troops all the way up you know, to Yorkshire to not be able to use them. No, that, that, that would be awful. So I'm going to squint a bit and say, okay, they were able to do this super forced march and there might be a slight delay of their arrival in that game, but like by I'll roll a dice. Okay, it's two or three moves. You can't come on and move one, but you can come on and move three or four, whatever. Right. So the art of fudging. Uh, also, not involving too many people in a campaign. Uh, I think this is the other thing. As I say, that the some of the most successful campaigns I've done were just me and my mate guy, or you know, with a handful of people involved, all of whom we knew each other really well, trusted each other to have each other's best interests in mind. None of us wanted to kind of make the other people miserable. We were all of a similar mindset of, do you know what? We're here to have fun. I'm not going to have a hissy fit if I lose or the umpire tells me, look, you know, that unit has lost half its men through dysentery or whatever. You have to make sure that your players have the right kind of mindset to participate. So I think those are the main things. And, and, but again, I, you know, I come back to the umpire. It's the, what I was saying earlier, it's those kind of relationship skills. It's the umpire not being there to just be God and say, you'll do as you're told, but the umpire being there to enable the players to have fun. I think that's a really good point about, you know, when, when you're a GM and you create the campaign, you have in your mind how it's supposed to play out. Yeah. Unfortunately, what you have in your mind and what your players do is often very different. <laughs> and, and the campaign is not what you wanted to play out. It's what the players do. And so you got to throw out from your head what you thought should happen 
yeah, uh, and, and, and make sure you support the players and what they're doing. Absolutely. And I can give a parallel because something else I'm doing right now, I'm running a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. I've created an island called Furchtinsel and a main town called Rattenstadt. And I've got a bunch of friends who are doing Dungeons and Dragons kind of for the first time. And uh, that brings up a number of issues. First of all, they're not used to uh, some of the hard things that can happen in war games, you know, they're, they're, they're civilians, as it were. I don't want to scare off the civilians. So I'm making sure my role as GM is, yes, I'm presenting them with challenges and, and, and all that kind of stuff and uh, opportunities to grow as players and their characters to develop. But I'm not there to punish them deliberately. So if I need to pretend that, you know, I didn't roll uh, 20 on my d20 oh look i've only thrown a five so you have survived i'm gonna do that right because yeah. because civilians certainly most players don't like it if they their their, their level five ranger or what it is gets killed off in the first turn you know you know oh look oh well done you've killed my rat men whatever uh so there's that kind of function there's also this other thing as you're saying where i've created this world for them which they love and being confronted with, okay, I this session, I'm hoping they're going to do this. I'm going to drop some heavy hints that this is where I want them to go because there's stuff that can happen, good things they could find. But they might just say, no, 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 I don't think we should go north. Let's go south instead, right? And you as GM had better be prepared for that, <laughs> right? Because it doesn't. Well, it would be most dispiriting for everyone if, if you have to say, oh, God, like, no, no, I'm sorry, you've got to go north because I've not prepared anything down south. So you have to kind of be able to you know, do the fudging, but have plenty of options already in place in your mind to make it possible for the players to just no, we want to march over here and do that instead. Um, so, yeah, that kind of flexibility, as you say, Miles, is critical. Miles, I uh, I have one question left. I want to squeeze in here for Henry before we wrap up. Um, but do you is there anything on on your list you want to touch on before no, we get I to that? I think we've hit them all. Uh, so go ahead, Greg. Uh, the last thing I want to get to is something that is I think uh, overlooked in our club because we have a club, but it's something you do touch on a number of times throughout the book in various sections. Solo campaigns. We're very spoiled yep. in our club. We have a great group of guys where we can do campaigns with two, three, four, up to you know eight or ten <laughs> players. But there are many gamers who do not necessarily have that option, yeah. uh, and they they need to look at solo campaigns. Um, so for solo gamers, you know what avenues do they have for? I mean, obviously we know they have computer games, but for tabletop miniature campaigning, what mm. kind of what kind of options should the solo gamer be looking at? Oh, wow. I mean, actually, when it comes to solo campaigns, <clears throat> um, one of the, both the joys and the difficulties is your options are completely unlimited because you haven't got to take anyone else into account, <laughs> right? Uh, and so that can be, wow. I mean, for someone like me, this is where all my world building, you know, even before I started involving my friend Guy, you know, and even now from time to time, I will just sit down and, you know, I'm going to fiddle in Photoshop on a new map, whatever, and start from scratch. Or I'm going to uh, think of my, my forces, the wonderful nation of Punkland, you know, which is kind of a bit sort of 
somewhere between Prussia and Austria kind of feel. To, I'm just going to, oh, do you know what? I'm just decided there's going to be a flu pandemic. And, oh, gosh, I've lost, I've rolled a load of dice and uh, lost a load of officers. I've got to generate a whole no, new load of characters and what are they like and what their personalities like. And, and I can spend happily an entire evening, an entire day just doing that kind of background, what might be called fluff stuff for my campaign not thinking that i've got any rush i've got no deadline to do it you know th th this is what makes it so wonderful and any number of other things you know because i know some solo campaigners who really get way down into the minutiae of you know logistics or the economy of a country <clears throat> you know i remember looking up what exchange rates there might have been between, say, the pound sterling and uh, the the tar, the Prussian taler, or whatever, or the French franc back in the 18th century? Nowadays, with Google, you can find out this stuff. You know, uh, it, it, there's there's a wealth of information out there, and you can spend hours just doing all this kind of world building, character creation stuff, adding flavour and texture to your campaign when it comes to the actual maneuver maneuvering of forces on the map kind of thing well there's a number of ways you can go about that uh one of the easiest ways is okay you can decide as the as the player that you are going to be controlling one side okay and the other side can be generated by you know for want of a better expression artificial intelligence now that ai can be in the form of you know there are computer programs out there that can decide this stuff for you or let's go back to don featherstone again you make up a set of cards and depending on you know what card is drawn that's what that army will do this turn or back to dyson tables create a table of right well under under these circumstances op, uh, army b would do this this or this depending on what the dice roll is or you can just simply be right i'm maneuvering i i decide i'm going to move maneuver my army to these coordinates on this map and you roll a die for each coordinate which determines whether you do stumble across something that's the enemy or not uh, and then you can fight a battle or not you know it's it's actually not as difficult as i think some people imagine it to be uh and you can take your time doing it but the simplest way of of creating a, a, an enemy if you like to fight so you don't know everything that's going on is using this kind of technique of uh, of randomization of an artificial intelligence which you can either draw up beforehand or you can just generate there and then on the spot then of course there's the other thing you can do like some people who play chess against themselves you can command both sides and you can simply you can just say right <clears throat> i'm going to have alternate moves so the red army i'm commanding this time right what do i think the red army should do and then literally you kind of go and sit around the other side of the map okay now i'm the blue commander what do i think blue should do in response to that you know have at it there's also you can look outside of tabletop wargaming and this kind of thing uh to board games you know i've got to mention board games in this podcast because they are a rich source of campaigning ideas and there's a whole load of board games nowadays that are designed for solo play 
you know, you just go to Board Game Geek or whatever and, you know, solo board games and up will come a list and you can use those board games as a basis for a solo campaign. Uh, or you can just adapt other games. Like I'm thinking of um, GMT Games Commands and Colors, for example, which is an alternate move system where, you know, the, the, the battlefield, the map, is divided into different sectors and you draw cards for each side in turn that enable you to do or not do certain things in each sector of, of the battlefield. And you can adapt that to a strategic map using cards you know, look at a set of commands and colors cards and just adapt them from a tactical context into a strategic context and there's kind of a ready-made solo game for you so uh you know I, I, there, there's so much that can be done by the solo gamer and as i say some of the, the biggest benefits of solo gaming are you haven't got to answer to anyone else you can do what the hell you like and you can take as much time as you want to take doing what the hell you like and uh particularly for people like me who i i just love the world building thing you know which which for me stretches from kind of a, a, a pseudo historical context right through to fantasy and sci-fi you know it, i i happily will design universes as much as you know little tiny islands um i i can do that to my heart's content and spend an entire day coming up with stupid names for places or you know silly names for commanders and no one can tell me i'm wrong <laughs> well those are definitely some advantages of solo gaming going as <laughs> deep into the weeds uh as as you want to go so uh yep. uh henry i really appreciate you taking the time to join miles and i to to talk about not just your book, but uh, wargaming campaigns in general. A huge, huge topic. And uh, like Miles, I do want to recommend the book. Uh, we'll make sure that we have a link to it in the description, in the, the notes for the show. Uh, I think it's a fantastic resource uh, for anybody who's thinking about designing a campaign, whether they're a beginner or, or advanced. And, uh, you know, while we're at it, Henry... Why don't we give you the chance to plug, uh, let's say, one other book. You mention a lot of books. Um, classics, you know, Don Featherstone, uh, yeah, yeah. Grant, uh, you, you, so so many others, titans yeah. of the hobby have kind of weighed in on this. Uh, yeah. If you had to recommend one, one other book that isn't your own, uh, that people should take a look at for wargaming yeah. campaigns, what would be the the one? What's the... Okay, Tony Barth setting up a wargames campaign, uh, which, if I stand up, hang on, I've got it on my shelf here somewhere. Uh, here we go. I've I think I've actually got three different editions of it. Uh, it. I've got here, picked up the third edition. It was produced by the War Games Research Group. Um, and it was printed, gosh, what date's in there? 1986. How fun. That's the same date as I started my Wars of Faltinian Success. Now we know where you got all your good ideas. Uh, Tony Barr setting up a War Games campaign. It's a lot smaller than my book. It's only, oh gosh, it's only what, like 80 pages, right? So it's a, it's a quick read, but it's quite dense. Uh, not as many pictures as in my book, but Tony Barth was brilliant at, uh, at coming up with concise ideas uh, for um, setting up campaigns, running campaigns. Uh, Tony Barth, I should point out, was uh, responsible for one of the famous wargaming campaigns fought back in the day, a campaign called Hyboria, uh, oh. which is basically a whole load of 
uh, ancient war game players uh, who back then were using the war games research group rules who uh, want, were, were well known at the time, you know, back in the uh, 70s and 80s <clears throat> for taking part in war gaming tournaments and stuff. And they wanted an idea to, to be able to pitch all their different ancient armies against one another, whether they were Vikings or Samurai or Arabs or Byzantines or whatever it happened to be. So Tony Barth came up with this mad idea of Hyboria, which is basically this polyglot map he kind of threw together, which enabled these guys to fight ongoing campaigns against one another. And they were publicized in the pages of a, a magazine now sadly long defunct called Battle for Wargamers back in the day, where they had regular monthly reports of what was going on in these Hyborian campaigns. Tony Barth, highly intelligent guy, uh, friend of uh, Phil Barker, Don Featherstone, Charles Grant, and a lot of the other big names back in the day. And this book, uh, which you can still find, uh, certainly on eBay and some other people. I think it's also been reprinted now uh, by a guy called John Curry, who runs a site called Wargaming.co, I think it is. Uh, but setting up a Wargames campaign, you can still find it. And I still think, you know, hats off. If, if I'm saying I, if there was a book out there I wish I'd written, probably this would be the one. Uh, so my way of writing the book was to steal loads of ideas from it and expand it by 400 pages. Right? So uh, certainly that I, I would say, Greg, is the one book I would say above all others that I would recommend immediately. Um, and of course, then, you know, not far behind, you know, we're talking about a split decision probably by the umpires. Uh, Don Featherstone's uh, Wargaming Campaigns, which was written some years before that, back in 1973, something like that, 74, is another classic. Uh, Charles Stewart Grant, C.S. Grant, has written a book about Wargaming Campaigns as well. I've got a bibliography in, in my book uh, that, that lists all these places that I got inspiration from. But yeah, Tony Barth, that's the one. Henry, if people would like to connect with you and uh, learn more about what it is that you're working on in the wargaming world, what is the best way uh, for them to do that? Because I know that you are extremely active on social media. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's a number of venues that you can find me. Uh, Twitter. I'm on Twitter a lot. My handle there is at Battle Games. I've just started an Instagram account, account uh, which is uh, at Battle Games underscore HH. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I've got a Facebook page, which is Battle Games. Search for Battle Games on Facebook. You'll find me there. Uh, my main place of business, as it were, nowadays is I have I run a Patreon gig where I have people sponsor me every month to do stuff, largely podcasts. I've now approaching my hundredth battle chat podcast, which is exclusive to patrons for the first couple of weeks and then goes public. And you can find the full list of those on my other blog website, which is battlegames.co.uk, which I first started back on the 18th of June, which is Waterloo Day in 1998. And it's been running ever since. That was great. I really appreciate the chat. That was awesome. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks, guys. I much appreciate you having me on the show. Mm -hmm.